Welcome to Coastal Voices, an audio documentary series that explores the relationship between people, land, and water in coastal Louisiana. I'm Mike Pasquet, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and History at Louisiana State University. With support from the Whiting Foundation and LSU's Coastal Sustainability Studio and Digital Scholarship Lab, Coastal Voices will take you on a journey down the lower Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, where Louisiana has lost over 1,800 square miles of land over the past 80 years. Scientists expect a comparable level of land loss in the next 50 years if coastal protection and restoration don't become priorities. Coastal Voices will introduce you to the perspectives of those who call the coast home, with an ear toward the historical and cultural impact of environmental changes to this endangered landscape. It's about telling stories and listening to the stories of people who have an intimate knowledge of Louisiana's waterways and lifeways. of the Gulf, I long for answers to the mysteries you hold, from the beautiful sunsets to the legendary stories of old, from the marshlands of the Louisiana bayous to the depths of Sigsbee Deep, to the vibrant flower banks of Texas, to the coral reefs of the Florida Keys. I'm captivated by your beauty. I dream of places where no land can I see. I know the dangers of your changing currents and lost souls who have gone before me. Should this be my final mission as I voyage beyond the port? I anticipate the journey that awaits me. I pray for healing to those with a saddened heart. If wrapped in your cloak is all that is left, should I not be found? Give solace to my loved ones, O Lady of the Gulf. I have gone home where greater seas abound. That's Mrs. Cindy Roussel reading a poem that she wrote a poem that is now inscribed on the base of a statue in Port Fouchon, Louisiana. It's a statue that memorializes those who have died in the Gulf of Mexico. The statue is called Lady of the Gulf. As far as Mrs. Roussel is concerned, Port Fouchon is the only place that the statue can be. The Port Fouchon is where all the action truly happens. It's the port. It's the port that... Uh, uh, everyone goes out uh, for, uh, especially in the oil industry, uh, all of our, you know, to get to and from all the rigs that are out there. Uh, the port is a, a, a major p player in in our um, economy here in the state of Louisiana. It is the uh, the, the uh, avenue for where um, all of our um, uh, um, freight supplies, everything comes in and out of this port, and so. Um, for us to have a Siemens Memorial, uh, we're better than through the port right here. This episode of Coastal Voices is all about Port Fouchon and what many in Louisiana call the working coast. Port Fouchon is located at the end of Bayou Lafourche, south of Leeville, right on the Gulf of Mexico. Almost 300 companies base their oil support operations at the port. Those companies service over 90% of deep water oil production in the Gulf of Mexico. Upwards of 15,000 people per month are flown to offshore locations supported by the port. Over 1,000 trucks travel in and out of the port every day, and over 1.5 million barrels of crude oil are piped through the port on a daily basis. 
with the Gulf of Mexico providing the United States with almost one-fifth of its domestic oil supply. The men and women who work in and around Port Fouchon play a vital role in the economies of Louisiana and the United States. What follows is a series of interviews with people who work on Louisiana's coast, primarily in the oil and maritime industries. Their experiences and perspectives speak to the relationship between people, land, water, and oil in Louisiana. Listen to the end. We started with Mrs. Roussel's description of the statue of Lady of the Gulf, and we're going to end with her contemplating the meaning of the Gulf. Louisiana's relationship with the oil industry goes back to the early 20th century. Mr. Woody Falgu knows the history of that relationship better than almost anyone in Louisiana. He's an attorney living in Thibodeau, Louisiana, and he's the author of the book, Rise of the Cajun Mariners, The Race for Big Oil, recently released in its second edition. I sat down with Mr. Falgu at his office in Thibodeau, where he outlined that early history. You have to begin with what happens in North Louisiana. North Louisiana in 1911, that's when the first oil and gas platform was erected over water, and that was in Caddo Lake near Shreveport in 1911. So that technology was developed. And then the first oil and gas rig was erected on a platform in the Gulf, rather, or of any coastal sea, was, was erected in, off the coast of Cameron in 1938. And then you advance a little further, all the way to in 1947, the first oil and gas platform was built off the coast of Morgan City. That's the first one um, well beyond the side of land, I should say. Oil was discovered in Leeville in 1931, and sometimes that's all right on the ridge land, right off the side of the road, but obviously some of that oil and gas is in the marsh, it's in a coastal bay, it's on a coastal lake, or beneath a coastal lake, and so the challenge is, how do we access it? Well, the only vessels that were available at the time were seafood vessels, shrimp boats, uh, various forms of shrimp boats, Lafitte skiffs, big trawlers, you name it, um, crab bateaus, uh, oyster luggers. So the first oil field vessels were seafood vessels. And then as the oil field pushed offshore in the late 30s and into the 40s, uh, in World War II wraps up in 1945, well, then you have these war surplus vessels that can be used. Now, they're not ideal. None of these vessels are ideal because they're not designed specifically for the oil field, right? They're for seafood or for, for war. When you get into the 1950s, certainly the 1960s, technology advances and more and more vessels are being designed specifically for oil and gas uses. And if you work for one of these boat crews, that means that you're living and sleeping on that boat anywhere from a seven-day hitch to a 28- to 30-day hitch, sometimes longer. But that's your life. You eat, you sleep, uh, you, you exist on that boat. It's always been an industry where you can make pretty good money right away. Right away. Now, first, that means grunt work. I mean, you, you're the deckhand, right? But over time, that individual can work himself up, or in some cases herself up, to being a captain. And a captain is paid extremely well. I mean, captains of workboats, depending on the size of the workboats, are paid far more than your basic college graduate and your average college graduate, right? So, um, but there's a tremendous sacrifice. You've got to give up at least half your year to being on that boat, being away from your family, away from your shore-based life and being on that boat. And that's, that's not so easy. 
That said, when you're when you're home, you've got tons of free time, right? You can hunt, fish, take care of your errands, see the family. But what it does is, I mean, you have to sometimes work Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day, so the family unit is not always together on a holiday. Or even maybe a, a special, if you're talking about religion, like the Catholic Church is big here, a special sacrament. You may miss your child's first communion because you're working offshore. And that's just the way the chips fell. You can't understate how, how much you're going to miss if you, if you work as a seaman on a workboat. Mr. Chet Chasson grew up in South Lafouche, surrounded by people who worked on the coast in the fishing and oil and maritime industries. His childhood recollections, however nostalgic, are a testament to a sense of belonging to the coast that you feel when you talk to people from the region. Uh, my parents tell me that at, at six weeks old, I was at a camp, you know, in the marsh, in the dead of winter, because I was born in December. When it was duck hunting season, we hunted duck. When it was, you know, trapping season, the family trapped. When it was trawling season, we were trawling for shrimp, you know, and filling the freezer. My great-grandparents and my grandparents were, my great-grandfather was a trawler and a trapper. He just lived off the land. That's, that's what he did. That was his way of life. And then my grandfather was, um, grew up trawling and fishing and all that, but then he went to work for the oil industry. He worked for Texaco until he retired from Texaco. And then what did he do? He went back and started trawling for a living, you know, just to, after retirement, just something to do uh, because that's, that's the way of life here. You know, growing up here was, I mean, the fondest memories I have are, um, you know, being at school on a Friday afternoon and my dad picking me up with the boat behind the truck. And we were jumping it, we'd pack the Thursday night and he'd pick me up and we, we, we were gone. We were going for the weekend to the boat, I mean, to, to the camp. And I mean, that was just, it was just wonderful. The smells and the sounds and the birds flying and the, the sun shining and the wind blowing in the morning. I mean, that's, that's what I see when I think of as a kid growing up and, and being here was um, just, that's the fondest memories I have. And um, I get a little emotional thinking about it because it's, it's just it's just what we are. But, but um, you know, just having, having my mom and my dad and my brother and I, just us at the camp and just enjoying life uh, was, it's wonderful. And, and, um, and you can see the smile on my face as we're talking. It's just, it's just uh, great to think back about that and, and just doing that. Mr. Chasson's all grown up now. He makes his living as the executive director of the Greater Lafouche Port Commission, which operates the activities going in and out of Port Fouchon. It's a big job. Port Fouchon is an intermodal hub where all of the different equipment, people, services needed to be provided to the drilling and production operations in the Gulf of Mexico, in particular the Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, uh, come either uh, from the inland side, be an inland barge or um, truck, and then it changes modes of transportation to a helicopter or an offshore supply vessel and goes offshore to do the things that they do and service the industry as it happens in the Gulf of Mexico. So, so that's really important. We service probably, not probably, 
uh, uh, upwards of 90% of all the deep water activity in the entire U.S. Gulf from Port Fouchon. Port Fouchon is a different place. It's not like a port that handles containers. It's, it's a locally, for the most part, operated, and it's a, it's a lot of local people that are on the dock facilities. And the oil and gas industry is not, it's just not the same. And so the, the, the people wanted a, a local person to be in charge. Um, and for us, that's not a negative thing. That's a positive thing. I think it, that's what makes us who we are, is the fact that it's a bunch of local people who've grown up here and who are working at a place um, that is, the, again, the economic engine for our community. And it's an important place. And um, it's in our heart, it's in our blood, it's in our sweat, it's in our tears. And um, we, we, uh, we all love what we do every day. Mr. Chasson's commitment to Port Fouchon fits within a larger commitment on the part of the state of Louisiana to mitigate coastal land loss and boost the economy. Every five years, Louisiana's Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority releases what is called the Coastal Master Plan. The latest edition of the plan came out in 2017. Part of the authority's mission is to, quote, promote a viable working coast to support regionally and nationally important businesses and industries. Here's Mr. Chasson. To me, the working coast means providing the ability for, for the economy, um, but also providing for the ability um, to save the landscape that's here. Because if, if you're working here, it's important enough to save it. And I think that's, that's, what, um, that's why Louisiana is uh, always touted that, and it's actually listed in the master plan that we are the working coast. Um, you're not going to see white sandy beaches and towering hotels, uh, and that's okay with us. Um, we want to say we're proud of the fact that we're, we're working on our coast and we're providing energy for the rest of the country. Um, and that's, that's ultimately what, what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, my name is Mike Adams um, from La Rose. Um, mom's from originally from Raceland. Dad's from down the bayou. Uh, just grew up there, you know, whole life. La Rose guy down the bayou. Today, Mr. Adams lives in Lafayette, Louisiana, a little bit away from the coast. But he works at Port Fouchon, seven days on and seven days off. His story is a pretty common one for men who live and work in Louisiana. My dad is a, a welder. He's been uh, welding in the shipyards uh, down the bayou since he's out of high school in 1973. I can remember um, spending time between semesters in shipyards, and you know, one of the guys that had been there a long time looked, looked at me when I came into the morning for work, and he's like, you ready for the shipyard life? And it's like, man, I, I knew kind of exactly what he meant. It's, it's not just, you know, it's, it's something you, you know, it's, it's a way of life and it really is. Between semesters and things like that, when I needed a job, I would go work in the shipyards 
and um, you know one of the jobs that I did have was with my dad's my, my parent he got me a job uh, tacking with him because he was a fitter and a welder in the shipyard and that's the job I was talking about when I walked in that morning a little 18 year old cat coming in to work and he's like you ready for the shipyard life I guess what le what led me to the decision to I guess get into the 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 offshore life was I was just working at a job that it wasn't paying much and uh, I looked at this uh, opportunity to, you know, I still, I knew about the program that I wanted to go into school. I knew you can do a rotation and uh, I was looking for a seven and seven job and uh, in the oil field industry and I knew a friend that worked for this construction company and I inquired about a job and, you know, a couple weeks later I got an interview and next thing you know I'm going through my training and I'm going offshore and really had never worked on rigs before. Uh, was in my early 20s and I kind of didn't know what to expect um, so just going out there what they call a green hand I was as green as can be at the time mr. Adams was taking classes at Nickel State University in Thibodeau Louisiana while also trying to make some money offshore I asked him about this balance of getting a college education and making a living it's in the back of your mind I guess it's maybe it's not at the forefront because you know you're gonna have different goals but I guess you know, there's always the oil field, you know, it's it's there. And if you need to provide for yourself or your family, I mean, you, you can, if you want to work, you know, you, you're, you'll be able to find something. Mr. Adams ultimately quit his offshore job and replaced it with a job at Port Fouchon. Um, but for me, when, when I started, uh, I started, I came off from offshore. I was, a, I was a laid off construction hand looking for a job. And uh, I found the, I found the job rigging at the port, and uh, luckily I was able to to get that job, and thankful to have it. And really, you know, it's it's kind of weird because I mean I thought I would be experienced coming from offshore to inshore, but it's it's kind of like a whole different animal working at the port too. So I was I was green again, you know. I had to I had to learn the ins and outs of how that worked, and then um, you know luckily you know after that I was able to move up into a forklift operator position. And uh, while I was training for a crane operator position while I was operating the forklift, I was uh, given the opportunity to get into what we call the office or the warehouse. Port's been good to me. Uh, Fushon's been good to me, been good to a lot of people. And uh, I just feel lucky to be able to have been employed for so long without, I guess, having really any interruption, even though, you know, the economy has gone up and down. We've gone through the spill, all that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just really one of the lucky ones who's uh, been able to go through that and, you know, keep my job and, uh, and, and you know, be given opportunities to advance. Mr. Roland Guidry worked the coast pretty much all his life. He's old enough to be Mr. Adams' grandfather. Born in Galliano on a houseboat, Mr. Guidry is now 82 years old. He lives in Cutoff, across the street from the bayou in Lafouche Parish. Graduated from school, went to work at a paper mill for four years. Then I went oyster fishing with my father-in-law, bought an oyster fishing boat. And we were fishing oysters from uh, across the Mississippi River and all through Rattlesnake Bayou, through Empire Locks. We'd haul oysters, sea oysters, and, and put them behind Grand Island there. And so they had a lot of land everywhere. You know, you had to wiggle through bayous and, and lakes and stuff like that. And, uh, so that was how I got my start in the, in the boat business and, and then uh, I went 
I bought a, built a bigger boat. My dad and my uncle and I built a boat at Golden Meadows, a 56-foot oyster boat. And uh, I went fishing in Texas. Uh, had a reef up there, Karankaway Reef, and Hurricane Carla came along and ruined our business. So after a few years there, I converted my boat into a lugger tug. And I got a job with uh, Thailand Exploration. The first one was, and we were shooting dynamite. And uh, in those days, seismograph was pretty primitive. We put a life preserver with 20 pounds powder and, and, and let some wires go behind the boat. And we had a, a, a little shack on the boat with recording equipment. And there are some other boats that we put some, some jugs down into the water, which were microphones, into the, put them into the bottom, stick them down into the mud. And when we get about 500 feet from the explosives, they would put two wires against a battery, which was on the back of my boat, and blow it up. Well, sometimes we were a little closer than that, sometimes 250 feet. Well, the concussion would knock the cotton out of the seams of the boat. So it would work 10 days on and five days off. Well, the five days off, I spent in the shipyard putting cotton back in the boat, you know? So when I say it was, it was very primitive. If you don't know, and you probably don't, shooting dynamite was a way to locate possible oil wells based on seismic readings. Mr. Guidry, like so many, had moved from the fishing industry to the oil industry. But he didn't stop with running boats. In the 1970s, he was elected to the port commission in Fushong. Those were early days for the port. When I got on the port, we had two buildings at Port Fushong. We had the, the blue building with Shell rented, called it the Banana Dock, and Charlie Hardleston had a fishing camp with a trailer and a little store. That was it. Uh, they had just built a road going to the, the, the bayou and one road going to the Banana Dock. That was all that was there. Everything else was marsh. Guidry served on the Port Commission for over 15 years. In the early 90s, he was appointed by then-Governor Edwin Edwards to be the first oil spill coordinator for the state of Louisiana. One of the first things he did as the oil spill coordinator was to bring Governor Edwards to Fouchon and to an offshore oil platform. Uh, so we got 14 people in those two big helicopters and went to Fouchon. And from there, one big helicopter went out and came back and got people because no more than one could fit on the, on the platform. At the time, the largest tanker in the world the Jare Viking had pulled up and was unloading oil. It carried 4.2 million barrels of oil, the biggest tanker in the world at the time. And the uh, Filipino crew uh, sent us a cake with the ship uh, on the cake. And so Governor Ed was, uh, was impressed with all of this stuff. And, and the first time he had ever been to the, to the facility offshore, 19 miles off the coast of Louisiana, off Port Fouchon. So that was a big plus for the port. And all the time that I was on the port itself, more and more oil companies came. And when I left to take the job with the state, we had 86 companies working at the port, from two entities to 86 companies, all and connected to oil businesses. Mr. Guidry worked as the state's oil spill coordinator for over 20 years. He was reappointed by Governors Foster, Blanco and Jindal. You know, we ran a, a, a tight ship. Uh, 
my, my uh, logo was a yin yang, and it means, you know, it was black and white, means, you know, we work together with industry. Because maybe people don't realize, you know, they call the big bad oil companies, but you gotta realize that your neighbor works for that company. He goes to the same church as you, he buys the same groceries, your kids go to school with your kids. So it's us, all of us, and the environment. My job was to make sure that the environment stayed clean like it was before. And when that was a spill, we made sure that it was clean down back to where it was before. That was before April 20th, 2010. It could turn out to be the worst environmental disaster in more than 20 years. Thousands of gallons of crude oil are oozing into the Louisiana coastal waters 10 days now after that oil rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico. And this afternoon, rescue crews cleaned their first bird found coated with oil, which is being spilled at a rate of 5,000 barrels every day. It could take up to three months to drill a relief well to plug the leak. And at the current rate of leakage, this spill would eclipse the Exxon Valdez disaster in Alaska back in 1989. The explosion and sinking of the Deepwater Horizon oil rig, sometimes referred to as the Macondo Wellhead, left 11 men dead. Located 42 miles off the coast and 5,000 feet below the water's surface, over 3 million barrels of oil leaked into the Gulf of Mexico for over three months. Mr. Guidry was the state's oil spill coordinator at the time. Um, I was in Baton Rouge when a phone call came in that they had a, an explosion on a platform offshore, Macondo. I took off in my stick car. I came to the port, talked to them at the port. I told them, I said, guys, I know you'll heard about the thing. Oh yeah, I'll get ready, because if this thing blows and leaks all over, you're gonna have a mess. You're gonna have to have boats leaving out of here and people leaving out of here to go. And I, I, at that time, I didn't expect that kind of all. So I reported to the governor and the 15 people that, that headed all the departments, and I told them, I said, guys, we've got the best in the country, the cleanup people. We've got the best equipment the best scientists, everything, they know all spills. I said, we probably have, if we do this right, we probably have the right amount of booms and all to keep the oil from our estuaries. But I said, God bless us if we don't do it right. A lot has happened since the rig went down over eight years ago. It's been messy, environmentally, economically, politically, legally. Pretty much everyone in Louisiana has an opinion on the event. Did the state do right? Did the federal government do right? Who's to blame? And what do we owe the people who lost their jobs or their livelihoods or their lives? Mr. Falgu knows a lot about the deal that Louisiana has made with oil. We recognize that the coast of Louisiana has tremendous resources. And we understand that those resources are there for our use and, and to help support us. I mean, there, there's no way we could enjoy the lifestyle that we do in this country without the oil and gas and the products that are made from the oil and gas that come from the Gulf of Mexico or the oil and gas that is shipped in through Port Fouchon and, and sent up through the pipeline channels 
of America. We, we need to have our working coast for America and Americans to sustain their lifestyle, period. We have, the coast has to be a working coast. We have to sacrifice our coast. Someone has to do it, right? So we do that in Louisiana, but we see the benefit. Most of us don't have a problem with that because it's put food on our table. A lot of people look at Louisiana and they see all those oil and gas platforms off our coast and they think, God, why would you desecrate those pristine waters with all that metal? Why would you run the risk of a BP oil spill? Because let's face it, Anytime you're going to mine for offshore oil and gas, there's a risk of a spill. There's a risk of an environmental catastrophe. Certainly the BP spill was an environmental catastrophe. Well, we run those risks again so we can, we as Americans can enjoy the lifestyle that we enjoy. Without the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf oil field and without Port Fouchon, our American economy doesn't work. But does that mean that we're in love with the fact that we had this oil spill? Of course not. Um, you can't sit here and say that it is a black and white issue because it isn't. You want to look across the marsh and you want to see beautiful, pristine, green marsh. You want to look out into the gulf and you want to see the horizon. You want to see dolphins jumping up and out of the water. You don't necessarily want to see oil and gas platforms. You want to go you know, into Terrebonne Bay and not see a bunch of wellheads and a bunch of rusty old uh, um, you know, tank batteries. So what do you see when you look out into the Gulf of Mexico from Louisiana's broken but still working coast? There are a lot of ways to answer this question, but I'll tell you what you don't see. Jason Anderson, Aaron Burkeen, Donald Clark, Stephen Ray Curtis, Roy Kemp, Carl Kleppinger, Keith Manuel, Dewey Rivette, Shane Rostow, Adam Wise, and Gordon Jones. These are the 11 men who died offshore on April 20th, 2010. I didn't speak to any of the family members who lost their fathers, brothers, and sons on the Deepwater Horizon. I just didn't. But I did speak with Mrs. Cindy Russo, who you met at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, I'm Cindy Roussel. I am uh, from uh, actually the Thibodeau area. Um, we started out in the Lockport area, my husband and I, and we moved to Thibodeau where our kids all went to college, Nichols. Um, I am the um, founder of the Blake Terry Memorial Foundation, and we've grown into building uh, the Lady of the Gulf nonprofit organization as well. So. Well, Lady of the Gulf is the, um, she is a lost at sea, um, or lost life at sea memorial. And um, she was established from the fact that um, I lost my son in uh, August 13th, 2011, Blake Terry, uh, in a diving accident um, 70 miles out at an old rig, 900 foot, you know, platform. And... Um, when he died and we were not able to recover him, our thoughts were, you know, oh gosh, I, I'm not even going to have a place uh, to, you know, memorial, have a memorial of him. And so the thought came for the fact that we felt that there are so many lives that have been lost like this, that there is not a lost at sea memorial for the state of Louisiana. 
And so um, that's how we began looking at, you know, we need a lost at sea memorial. We need a Seaman's Memorial. And it grew from there um, as I, I learned, as I was trying to investigate a little bit more about the history of what kind of monuments were in, in Louisiana, uh, I learned that um, through friends that uh, Deepwater Horizon families were also interested in a memorial and they didn't have one. And so um, we all got together. I, I, I cold called these individuals who I think they thought at first I was a salesperson and uh, got a few hangups, but once they realized who I was, um, we uh, joined together and coming up with something that we felt uh, would represent the, the actual Gulf of Mexico, and, um, and that's how she was established. Mrs. Roussel loved her son, Blake. Still does. She wrote a book about him. It's called Even Pirates Go to Heaven. But I wrote the book primarily because the stories were so many and um, he was so unique. Uh, his love for life was so unique. Uh, to be 27 years old and to have lived what he had lived, I felt was very important. The things that he did, he was a missionary. From, the, from day one, he was sent to us for a reason. And he was truly the example of how we should live today and never take life for granted. He didn't take life for granted. He took it as full as he could and absorbed it. He just inhaled life. His life was so full, um, I wanted everyone to know it's not over. And it's not. Look at what we're doing. He's very much a part of this, or I wouldn't be sitting here today talking about a monument I'd have never dreamed in my life. I would be a part of and um, it was all through him and so that's why I wrote it. Blake's body was never recovered but there is a shrine to him in Mrs. Roussel's house. Among the many pictures and candles and mementos is a box given to Mrs. Roussel by a diver who tried to find Blake on that August day back in 2011. There's a shell in the box. And so he um went back out to the, or the night that, that he went out to do the dive to try to find Blake during the rescue mission, he knew that he wasn't going to find him, that he said, I have to bring back something. You know, we all are, have to have something tangible, you know, when we, especially when you don't have a body. And he broke a, a oyster shell off the rig and brought it to me, and it's the sponge, it's, the, it's, a, it's a sponge shell that it was opened, you know, and um, it, it turned brown, you know, when you pull it from the sea, it loses the beauty, and it hits that oxygen, and um, it's in a, a beautiful box um, with the rig, you know, uh, Oyster Rig 873 uh, is the name of the rig he went down. Um, Lo and behold, I, you know, he said, he asked me, he said, Blake never brought you these types of things. And I said, you see how brown it is? I said, he wouldn't have brought it because he knew the beauty would be gone. Um, because once you pull it from the sea, the colors have now, they're, they're going to turn brown. And so he, he didn't see the beauty of it coming out of the water. He felt it beautiful in the water. Um, I've not been to the rig. 
And um, my all my children and my husband have all went to the rig. They've all dove in the water and swam at the rig, which is crazy, but they've all done it. Um, but I haven't because um, although he died there, he's not there. And uh, I, but different ones every time uh, go past the rig, I get so many photos of the rig. Um, I love just being at the beachfront, right at the beachfront to hear the waves. And I, I know he's there, you know. Um, but to be out there, I, I don't see him there anymore. I just see that he's he's ascended from there. He, he entered, I, I tell everyone that um, he's not there, but he entered the gates of heaven there. You know, what a unique place to be in the middle of the ocean and be able to enter into the gates. And that's where he, he entered, uh, where he would have loved to have entered, you know. He told me that from years ago, you know, Mom, if anything ever happened to me, in the Gulf, they'll never find me, not with the currents, but I know where he is, so I'm at peace with that. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. God of all consolation, by your just decree, our bodies return to the dust from which they were shaped. On the morning of October 21st, 2017, I drove down to Port Fouchon, joined by my two boys, Mick and Pete, and Madeline Smith, research assistant for Coastal Voices. In your it was the day that the Lady of the Gulf statue would be revealed to the public. It was a good crowd, sunny. A priest opened the ceremony by blessing the statue with holy water and saying a prayer. Mr. Chet Chasson, director of the Port Commission, welcomed everyone to the event. The former parish president shared a few words, as did a parish councilman. The victor over death, and offer us the pledge of our own resurrection. Then Mr. Chris Jones walked to the podium. Good morning, I'm Chris Jones. Uh, I'm honored to speak with you all today on this beautiful day, no rain, so that's, that's obviously good. And for a truly wonderful reason, um, as a representative of the families who lost loved ones in the Deepwater Horizon disaster, I was asked to say a few words about what this memorial means to us. My brother, Gordon Jones, died aboard the Deepwater Horizon on April 20th, 2010. Losing a loved one, especially so, so unexpectedly, is never easy. While some say that time heals those wounds, I'm not sure I really agree with that. Life goes on and memories sometimes fade, but we never forget. Which is why this memorial means so much to me and our family. We have tried hard to remember Gordon in lots of different ways, and this is another one we will always cherish. On April 21st, 2010, I raced down LA-1 to Port Fouchon because I was told that was where they were bringing the survivors of the oil rig explosion. It was a place just down the road, not far from where we're, where we're, where we're gathered here now. To that point, I didn't know what happened to Gordon or whether he would be there or not, but I went, desperately hoping I would find him and bring him home. Sadly, 
He was not there and eventually learned he was one of the 11 victims of that terrible disaster. Since then, I've traveled down LA-1 to both Fushan and Grand Isle numerous times. And every time, I vividly recall that drive seven years ago. It's impossible to forget. But what I'm grateful for is that this memorial will be here at the end of this road forever to remind our family and everyone else about Gordon and all the others who have lost their lives in this Gulf. It's a beautiful tribute and memorial and our family is honored to be a part of it. Again, I thank everyone involved for making this memorial a reality and an everlasting tribute to the people we love. Thank you. Mrs. Roussel was given the last word at the ceremony. When Father Greg said he would accept saying the prayer and bless her, he then asked me to tell him the story. The story. How many stories could I tell? The truth is we all have a story to tell of someone we lost to the Gulf or other waters We've lost someone we know of to talk about and share their story. Today their story is told here with Lady of the Gulf. She will now tell their story. Wrapped in her cloak, she holds all that is left. She holds the answers to the mysteries of the legendary stories of old. She tells the story of Gordon Lewis Jones, of Shane Michael Rashoda, of Adam T Taylor Wise, Roy Wyatt Kemp, Aaron Dale Birkin, Stephen Ray Curtis, Dewey Allen Revit, Jason Anderson, Rory, Rory James Ujwal, Ronnie Lee Meek, Moke, I'm sorry, Thomas Wayne Clough, Frank Allen Richard, Michael Edward LaBeouf, Noah Francis Richard, Saul Adam uh, Allen Oshlemoe, Paul Abdon Kale, Harold Joseph Kale, Court Michael Sherman, Wilford F. Wilford Crawford, Bill Crawford, Tim Raines, Michael Reed, Marvin Chester Chet Cassell Jr., and the story of so many that are not mentioned today. Thank you. I wouldn't let them undo it. Mrs. Roussel is right. There are so many stories. Here's one more. Would you, would you mind reading a portion of the book? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. Which portion did you want me to read? Well. One that's going to make me break down? Oh, or? never. No, no, no. How about the prologue? I can do that. That's the tough part. <laughs> oh, 
gosh. You don't, don't have to if you I don't have to if you don't want to. Um, because this was what geared the whole thing. Um, Ma, I, that one, this one's a tough one. Ma, it's me, it's Blake. I was in shock as I held the phone to my ear. Blake, where are you? I shouted. Do you know that I, that we thought we lost you in the Gulf? Yes, Mom, I know. I don't remember what happened. All I know is that when I went to sleep and I woke up at a camp in Lake Decat, his voice was so calm as though he wanted to try to keep me calm. There was static on the phone. His voice kept fading in and out. Mom, the connection will be hard for me, but I will keep trying to reach you, okay? I'm working down in Coquitry, and I will let you know where I am headed next. I could hear voices in the background. He seemed to be distracted while he was speaking to me. This was not unusual for Blake, as he always had 20 million things going on at one time. Can you come home, I asked, knowing in my gut the answer already. He paused, and then he said, No, I have, to work, to, I have work to do, but just know I love you, Mom. I love you very much. I will keep in touch, so don't worry, okay? He told me one more time, Mom, I love you. Then I woke up. Tears were flowing down my face, and my heart was pounding. This dream was so real that when I woke up, I had been crying in my sleep. I woke up, Scott, my husband, and I told him of my dream. The night before I told him, that maybe it was time to shut off Blake's cell phone. I had left his phone on as it was the day he went missing. I left both his voicemail and his text messages alone. I did not have the heart to shut it off. I could still call it and hear his voice, and I did not want to lose all that I had left of him. Scott put his arms around me, and he said as I laid there crying, and he said, we need to keep his phone on just in case he calls again. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. Thank you, Miss Cindy. And thank you for listening to Coastal Voices. There are some amazing LSU students who made this episode possible. Josh Jackson did the editing. Taylor Goss produced the music and sounds. Madeline Smith did the research. And Nicole Dow along with Professor Courtney Barr of the LSU Graphic Design Student Organization, made the website. Please visit the website, where you can watch interviews with residents of coastal Louisiana, look at past and present photographs of coastal communities, and see some maps made by LSU student Delaney McGinnis. Please consider donating to the Blake Terry Memorial Foundation, which is dedicated to the recovery of lost loved ones in the Gulf of Mexico and beyond go to btmemorialfoundation.com. I hope you'll listen to the next episode of Coastal Voices. There are more stories to tell.